0: Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left brain robots, right brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey.
1: Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global, Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or sub-advised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This
2: podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. All right, we are right into it today. No commercial, straight into the glass and down your throat with PJ Pierre from Denali Asset Management. Today, we are going to be talking about modern monetary theory, how it um, would guide us through the current economic conundrums and um, the potential certain um, uh, concern, maybe, in a lot of quarters about the potential for moving into a fiscal dominance situation. What is that? How would the government and the markets navigate that? So we're going to cover all that territory today. PJ is Especially well equipped to discuss this, um, studied for several years under um, I'm going to call him the father of modern monetary theory, Warren Mosler, um, and applies, you know, th- that framework and a variety of other frameworks in his day job as a, a global macro trader at Denali. But before we get started, I just want to make sure everyone understands that this is for informational and educational purposes only. This is not advice. Please discuss anything that we talk about today with your own advisor before acting on um, any of inf- the information or concepts. And before we get going, I know that Rodrigo has some housekeeping he wants to catch you up on. But he's frozen, so <laughs> maybe he's we'll just frozen. keep going. He is frozen. <laughs> um, okay, well, you know, he was he was super... No, we can't are, are, you guys, you.
0: are you guys, can you guys hear me now? Am I back? No, am I still? Okay,
2: yeah, you're,
0: you're kind of yeah, back. Yeah. I'm going. Going. But you're well, back. look, I'm, I'm back. So just, um, yeah, I, got, I forgot to take, turn off my VPN. So yes, welcome to the new season of Resolve Asset Management. And uh, before we do get into the nitty gritty of MMT and all that fun stuff, I just want to make some quick announcements of the things we've been working hard on the last couple months. Um, the main announcement is we have um, launched ReturnStack.com. And this is a kind of return stack portfolio solutions joint venture with, uh, Corey Hothstein at Newfound Research, where we are helping advisors and, and foundations and pension plans and individuals, anybody who wants to listen to understand how to use prepackaged products of different betas and alphas in order to create all types of portfolios that, um, that in the way that the institutions do it by stacking things on top of each other, saying yes and. Rather than this or that. So, if you want to check that out, go to returnstack.com. We have a ton of new content. We also have a new YouTube channel. Um, so, look up Return Stack Portfolio Solutions, and you'll see four pieces of content there now. But we're going to put a lot more information uh, over the coming weeks and months. So, do like, a subscribe, comment. If you like this uh, channel, you're going to love that channel. And um, and uh, there will be uh, you can sign up for a newsletter so you can get some information over your email as well. The last announcement is that we also have done an update on our own site. If anybody's interested in looking to see what Resolve has been up to, go to investresolve.com and uh, let us uh, know how we did on the on the revamp and what we're offering there it has a b- bunch more information, a bunch more presentations and uh, images and content that I think you'd find useful. And with that, I think we can start off our main conversation with our main guy. Um, but I know Super. that Adam has been preparing diligently for this. So when we when we started off with him, so have you, Richard. I know that you guys are hardworking. Well, yeah, it. I mean,
2: I have to say that that um, some of the most fun conversations that uh, I have the chance to have with people in the industry, I've had with PJ at uh, various events. So <laughs> I've been looking forward to this. I actually, I look back, the first time we met was at a, um, I think it was a Real Vision conference here in Cayman. Right. Right. And... Man, I think I spent two hours. I, I cornered poor PJ at the end <laughs> of a table at dinner and just grilled him for two hours on uh, on MMT, and I had all kinds of questions. And um, yeah, he he answered every single one of them, and and I came away with just a way better understanding of uh, of the topic, and having cleared up a lot of misconceptions. So I hope that we can do the same today. And I thought that probably the clearest line of inquiry to kind of get us started was to start with some of the basics, right? Because I think a lot, I don't think there's any topic in economics that is more misconstrued and misunderstood than modern monetary theory. People kind of confuse it with a very clear neoliberal prescriptive policy framework and like it just gets um, tarred with all kinds of different uh, brushes. So let's start with, you know, where did all this come from um, my understanding is that MMT is actually a descriptive framework about how the monetary system works and then how the economy then layers on top of the um, of the monetary system. So maybe just start with what is MMT as a sort of descriptive framework for how the economy works?
3: Sure. Um, well, I'm excited to be here with you guys. And uh, this is obviously a topic that's pretty... Near and dear to me. Um, so MMT, I think, is pretty much a description of the debits and credits that take place, you know, within any sort of a monetary system. And I think where a lot of the theory comes from, and a lot of the controversy comes from this idea that a lot of people with armed with MMT insights come up with certain prescriptions that um, that may sort of bring about certain controversies. So the way I like to say it is I think m starts with a description of the sequence of events in a monetary system. And I think that sequence is important because it's sort of, it shines light on what things are sort of applicable and inapplicable when you're sort of analyzing a fixed exchange, floating exchange uh, monetary system. So for example, I would say that MMT describes our monetary system as a system where, or at least the money story starts as a system where the government imposes a tax payable in its tax credit that it issues, which is the currency. And from there, the government spends, collects taxes, issues, bonds. And that sounds like a pretty trivial sort of description, but the reason it's not trivial is if you assume that the government starts from a, if you assume that the money story starts with the government first collecting taxes from the private sector and then spending, then you sort of arrive at all sorts of beliefs on what the government's fiscal position is what that means for solvency, what that means for private investment, things like crowding out uh, and so forth. But I think if once you understand the sequence, it becomes clear that with a floating exchange system, certain things just aren't really applicable.
1: So let's pause here for a second, because I want to get this straight. So at one point, government needs to collect money proceeds to fill its coffers so that it can spend that money into existence right if you if you think way back if we're going to go from from the start of when governments first organized they're probably trying to raise an army right yes for for all sorts of uh, uh conquests and, and and geographic uh additions to their to their mainland and once you take that premise where are they collecting those taxes from like it, the way I think about this, they're going to be collecting taxes from the productive portions of the population. And that is the starting point from which they can then spend those taxes. Where, what am I missing? Where am I getting this wrong?
3: Well, so I think the difference is, um, I think the idea that you sort of bring about is a very common one, right? That's That's sort of how we all learn about economies and monetary systems. And we sort of look at them from a perspective of real resources, because that's what really matters, right? The currency is just, you know, debits and credits on a balance sheet, or, you know, something printed on paper or minted coin. It's the real resources that the currency buys that's really important. That really drives the economy. So we think of, we like to think of it in terms of real resources. But if you think about it, when the government first collects dollar, uh, first collects taxes in USD. That sort of creates a. It sort of, you know, begs the question: Where did the private sector get the USD in the first place? So, well, you know,
1: <laughs> I guess the USD would be the medium of exchange through which it has to pay those taxes, but the 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 value that is accrued through goods and services is happens uh, uh above and beyond what the government is doing right above and beyond whatever medium of exchange is being used for that would you sure. agree
3: with that sure but but for the transaction you know when when the greenbacks were first introduced us dollar which is the unit of account that we most typically analyze uh you know being american centric um here in the us when the government first issued greenbacks and you would ask the question, how was the government able to spin greenbacks into existence? How how was the union army able to be mobilized with this currency thing that didn't exist just a year before? And it's because the federal government imposes a tax payable only in greenbacks which then allows them to spend those greenbacks into the economy as people are basically unemployed with respect to this new tax credit. And then they're able to then go work, earn that tax credit and, and remit it back to the government. And th- this this concept isn't as controversial as you think. The concept of revenue, I mean, the revenue translates to return. It's to return the tax credit back to the government. It, it, it was never like the, it, it was never the, tax paying public was never the source of that credit in the first instance. Same way if you go to a ball game on, you know, on Sunday to watch a, you know, to watch a football game or soccer, whatever sport of your choice, it doesn't matter. And you see people going into the stadium and they're handing tickets over to the ticket attendant. They're returning those tickets to the ticket attendant. Those tickets first came from the stadium and they're being returned as a credit, as an admission credit that gets you in the game, and when you understand that sequence, it sort of makes a, certain things. I think it keeps you from making certain mistakes. Um, you know, it would, for example, keep you from making you know the mistake of the infamous widowmaker trade, thinking that you know, where's you know who's going to buy the JGBs? So you know, this is a good short because eventually this these rates are going to spike. It prevents you from that sort of thing because you understand that the credits used to buy purchase JGBs are first put into the economy by the Japanese government when it spends and then are only returned to it when the government taxes or if there's a deficit issues JGBs.
1: But if I'm using your example then, and let's say the government is raising taxes for the first time, the greenbacks have yet to be spent or or distributed into existence. I would imagine the first time those taxes are being levied would be through the collection of precious metals. And I know that this doesn't quite apply to the way the economy is run today because we're no longer, we're in a fiat system now, there's no longer a gold-backed currency of any sort. But originally I would imagine gold, silver, and maybe other types of precious metals, were raised in taxes, and that became then the ballast against which greenbacks were 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 issued. Right, the the especially back in the beginning, those greenbacks were were IOUs that people would then claim that there would there was the thought of there was a claim behind uh, for precious metal. So I guess what I'm trying to understand is this very beginning of this this premise that MMT established establishes that governments spend this money into existence, and then recollects it back as taxes. The way I envision this is governments first need to collect taxes from the population. And the way I have envisioned this through your scenario is collects dollars, collects, uh, t- sorry, collects gold, collects silver, and then establishes critical mass for this ballast that then becomes the monetary system.
3: Well, so if you actually look at the way it's played out in history. It's, it's very similar to what you're saying, except for the government doesn't, the government doesn't just show up and collect your, the government, like say on a fixed exchange system or or on a gold standard, the government would accept gold or silver, precious metals in exchange. The government, for taxes, but what the government's actually doing is the government's purchasing your gold with its tax credit, which you then have and then can use to pay your tax obligation. <clears throat> so it's <clears throat> it, it's a purchase in the first in the first instance. It's it, it's similar to like in the banking system when you get a mortgage, you know, it's it's accurate to say that the financial institution is purchasing your note when it issues you that mortgage and it's paying for that purchase with commercial bank deposits and when you look at it from that sequence of credits it keeps it keeps everything in line in essence
2: yeah i mean when at the foundation of of most modern countries whatever precious metals are held in reserve at the government were typically seized <laughs> they weren't they weren't harvested through taxes right they were seized Through either conquest or right, very seizure on whatever landmass that you're defending. (laughs) So it's right. So
3: yeah, yeah. some sort of conquest, or if you look at like with uh, colonialization. So you know, uh, British set up a colony and some somewhere in the you know off the coast of Africa or somewhere in Africa. It's the government starts by imposing a tax payable in its currency. And then that way, if it's a mining colony, everyone there, you know, maybe it's a hut tax and the government says, look, if you don't pay your taxes, we'll burn down your hut. I mean, these are very uh it's like a very a feudal
2: state.
3: yeah, yeah, like in a in a feudal state, this is a very coercive system of of governance with taxation, as we all know. And so, you know, this indigenous population says, Okay, well how do i earn this this thing that i need to pay the taxes well you show up at the mine and you mine for the you know copper and and we'll pay you this many credits and you know you owe this this is your tax obligation we'll pay you an amount that's typically in surplus of your tax obligation which allows for savings and that's what allows them to monetize this new colony with their currency so it, it yeah, again I- from the beginning it starts with that imposition of the tax then the government can spend that, which is necessary to pay taxes into the economy. And then that economy can remit that back to the government to meet its tax obligation.
1: Let's say then for, for argument's sake, that uh, we established that, that this is a good starting point. Because I guess we, we can go back on chicken and the egg. I can definitely imagine a scenario where even if the government did control a lot of the precious metals, there would have been warlords or other people with me that would have controlled a portion of that. and so. The government is is, is uh, acting on the economy against some of these other players. But for, for arguments, sake, let's just say that this is the starting point for for the framework. Then it's useful to understand why you think that this way of viewing the the monetary system is more useful or is more accurate than perhaps some of the more conventional frameworks.
3: Yeah. So I mean, and note that you don't really. I mean, you don't really have to. Nail down how every single monetary system was started. You know, throughout human history, it's not really relevant. the The point is that you can start a monetary system this way. It has been done this way in certain instances, and the sequence, I think, holds. You know, no matter how you look at it. If you look at, you know, if you go back to Roman times and you were on a precious metal system, and you know, you were using, you know, shekels or whatever that instrument that's used that circulates in the system is usually an instrument that comes from the crown. And if you are caught counterfeiting that thing, you, you, you're punished. So it, it's, it's tax credits historically and, you know, are a creature of the state.
2: Yeah. And I think it's, um, I mean, it's useful also to try and cast this in a modern context, right? So, um, you know, there was a bill signed into law, the Inflation Reduction Act, right? Um, once that bill is signed into law, that money is de facto spent already, right? And the government then... So so actually, maybe why don't you walk through the steps? Once a bill is signed into law and the government commits to to, to spending into the economy, what, what happens then in, in a modern context?
3: Yeah, so like in our modern system, when... When Congress passes a budget and spending is appropriated, that appropriations in essence is instructions for the treasury to make certain payments to certain agents in the economy, whether those agents be government employees, whether they be uh, government contractors, whether they be, uh, you know, citizens receiving stimulus checks or, you know, any sort of private entity that's basically you know engaging in trade with the government so it's that sequence is congress appropriates a bill when it's the treasury then you know makes those scheduled payments and the fed maintains this all on its balance sheet which the dollar monetary system is just a balance sheet with debits and credits at the federal reserve
2: Right. So the spending happens because they, because Congress is, you know, bound a law that says that they're going to, to appropriate that they need to appropriate these funds and distribute them into the economy. And then they set about figuring out if account to pay this. Do we need to issue new um, funding sources in order to raise the money to go pay this? And at some point in the future some of the money that is paid out into the economy is then returned in the form of taxes
3: yes and and whatever balance hasn't been used to pay taxes yet is evidenced by the national debt you know sits in you know savings accounts at the fed which is you know which we know as you know treasury securities
2: Sure, and and of course, whatever surplus is outstanding um, as government deficit is also definitionally private surplus.
3: Right. You know, and, and that's just basic double entry accounting. I don't think that's that's not something that's controversial.
2: Yeah. So, so the, you know, in in many respects, the government creates the. Um, the wealth and the private sector and the government distribute that wealth,
3: right? Well, so see, I'll be careful to use the term wealth, right? Because I think that's where that's where some of these controversies come from and in, right. in, in these discussions because, you know, some people argue, well, you know, MMT proponents believe that uh, currency is real wealth. And, you know, so terms like wealth, terms like money can be a little bit too ambiguous, I think. For sort of pushing forward a discussion but what it what that does create are the net financial assets that accumulate as dollar denominated savings in the private sector
2: right gotcha
3: you know if you're an austrian if you're an austrian you don't believe that's real wealth
2: (laughs) right right and i want to get into the role of the banking system too here because you know that's that's a, a very complex dimension of the whole MMT framework that um, it's important to tell that story. Um, but I want to dwell up for a second on the fact that, I mean, do you agree, first of all, with the uh, assertion that um, under the, the, the framework that exponents of MMT view the monetary system, that taxes are not a mechanical constraint on spending? And if so, do you think that, like that that may be a source of discomfort with people who are sort of first learning about how MMT views the monetary system.
3: Yeah. I agree with you that I think that can sometimes be a source of discomfort. I also would like to make the point that I don't think that that's a controversial statement, right? I think almost every modern school of economic thought understands that a fiat currency issuing in government isn't revenue constrained per se, you know the government can issue currency and spend i mean you you know we see all the means money printer go burr. <laughs> we understand that you know when covid you know when covid hit and they passed these appropriation bills you know 2.4 trillion in spending that the government didn't hurry up and you know mobilize the irs to collect that 2.4 trillion first before they could issue those checks so it's not really a controversial statement i think what might be controversial or the point of contention is Do MN, as an MNT proponent, do I believe that the government can spend infinite sums of uh, its currency into the economy and never, you know, without any real consequence? And I would say that that's often a mischaracterization of MMT. I mean, the idea is the government's not revenue constrained and the government can issue that currency, but then there are consequences. Those consequences could be inflation, they could be a collapse of your currency, they could be, you know, all sorts of things. The burden of proof is sort of on individuals making these sort of proposals to determine whether or not those those consequences are real or, you know, have a high probability of, of hitting the economy. So, you know, when, when Congress appropriates a budget, it shouldn't be so concerned on, you know, balancing. You know, spending with tax collection, as much as it should be, looking at the full picture of if we are spending in deficit, is this going to be creating an inflation problem? Is this going to cause us to have trouble with our, with our desired trade position, and so on? Is it
1: productive spending, or are you actually just just kicking the can down the road? So I guess the 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 revenue constraint comes from the ability to expand M2 or the, the, the monetary base, however you want to characterize it, versus the production of goods and services mm-hmm. that can meet that additional monetary base, right? So so I guess maybe it would be useful to, to establish a couple of flags on the sand to kind of understand how you're thinking and how your f- framework jives with our understanding. Would you agree that this recent inflationary episode that we've had over the last couple of years, would that have to do with the fiscal spending that the government, uh you know, deficit spending. The government had expansionary fiscal policies through COVID, necessary fiscal policies. You might argue on the degree and the size of those, but that money was spent into existence and was given into the pockets and bank accounts of the population that were chasing the same amounts of goods and services. And, and at some points, a more constrained amount of goods and services because of supply chain constraints and all those things that happen, w- would you agree that the the primary driver for this inflationary episode had to do with the an expansion of uh, of money and currency in circulation versus the availability of goods and services for the economy?
3: Yeah, yeah I think that's a fair statement. I think I think that statement is sort of true by definition, right?
2: So okay, uh, so maybe maybe a better a, a more general sort of way to approach this is um, taxation is not a constraint, a mechanical constraint on spending. What are the constraints on spending? And if you violate those constraints, what are the expected consequences and how are they observed?
3: Yeah, so I think the simplest answer I'd say is the government spending is constrained by goods and services offered for sale in exchange for its tax credit. Right, So and at, at any given price level, there's a certain amount of goods and services offered for sale. like we all understand markets. and sometimes you have to cry up the price to try to, you know, to try to command more goods and services and which is which can be known as inflation. But if you're in a situation where, for example, if you have a shortage of some critical resource, You know, no amount of spending is going to allow you to purchase that resource resource if the economy is net short. Um, So, you know, there's there's always going to be potential real resource constraints. Um, But, you know, more fundamentally, you know, the government could ask me to, you know, if I'm a coder or a programmer, the government could ask me to write a program and I could just, my services could just not be available for sale. I could just not take that job, right? You know, government might ask you to sell your house and you may you know you may decide to not sell your house no matter what they offer. Yeah. Right. So
2: like it's a it's a a series of incentives, and you have, you know, a very large number of agents in the economy that are all making decisions from day to day and minute to minute about whether they're gonna be incentivized to work at this price or incentivized to to spend at this price or incentivized to produce at this price, right? And Correct. um so so in what is the optimization that the fiscal the government fiscal agent is trying to um engender? Are they trying to um create sufficient fiscal deficits or surpluses in order to be well aligned with the, the current productive capacity of of the economy in general is that is that sort of the primary objective
3: i don't think they are i i don't think that our policymakers understand the role of government in that regard right like so in the simple answer like at a current given amount of you know at a current level of taxation the government creates a certain amount of of uh demand for its currency people looking for work in exchange for its currency and to the degree that it leaves to the to the degree that the government allows that its fiscal position to clear that market is a degree that i would think you would say that it's optimizing the way you sort the way you describe there adam so i think oftentimes our government you know has a situation where you know government policy can create you know a million people who are unemployed and the government just leaves them there. <laughs> so it's, you know, I, I don't think I would consider that to be optimization. Um, and I think that's, that's also another, I think, important inside of MNT is understanding that when the government imposes a tax, based on any given level of taxation, and private sector desire to net save, you can always see whether or not the government spending is adequate for full employment, and it's evidenced by, you know, by how many people, you know, are, are unemployed. So, you know, anytime that you have high levels of unemployment, the government could easily move those people, uh, employ that labor, either via, you know, a tax cut or a spending increase. And it doesn't really matter what your politics are. If you're, you know, a conservative, you probably propose, you probably would prefer a tax cut. And that's fine. And if you're a progressive, you might desire to pay people to clean up the oceans. And that would be a spending increase. Uh, But, you know, from an economic standpoint, and for what, where that leaves the government's fiscal position and the economy's, uh, the economy's net, you know, ability to net save and where aggregate demand sort of levels off is is going to be the same, you yeah, know. In
2: the same place, right? Yeah, it's
3: yeah. in the same place. You know, those just so, become political decisions.
2: So so contrast that with, you know, what, what I would say sort of maybe the, well, I guess the neoclassical view, but I think also sort of the dominant um, economic paradigm that we've been operating under, say, for the last sort of 30 35 years, the monetarist paradigm, since everyone seemed to embrace Milton Friedman's um, framework and, and policy guidelines. Um, you know, I, obviously the monetarist would say, well, no, we, we don't do that with fiscal policy. We do that with monetary policy, right? We, we, we raise interest rates when we want to slow the economy down. We, we, um, we lower interest rates when we want to accelerate economic demand. Um, how does the MMT fiscal focus um, differ from the monetarists' um, monetary or interest rate focus? And, you know, what is the source of contention there? Why, why, why can't those two schools come to an agreement?
3: Well, I think it sort of comes down to what you just said. Uh, monetarists believe that, you know, the economy should be regulated. Policymakers should regulate the economy through, via monetary policy. And they believe that that's the least, uh, the least amount of intervention. And um, I argue, I would argue that they're missing a critical component and that's the fiscal aspect of monetary policy, right? So, you know, recently the fed decided to raise rates to, to combat inflation, you know, simply put. Well, when the Fed raised rates from, you know, near zero, twenty-five basis points to, you know, five and a quarter percent, five and a half percent, that increases the amount of interest the treasury has to pay on the outstanding debt. That has you know, that has implied fiscal uh ramifications. And those fiscal ramifications are you know, can't sort of just be hand waved away. I think that though, you know, that, that's real money. That's, you know, the at, at the current debt load and this level of interest, you know, the government's paying, you know, paying a trillion dollars of interest payments a year to the private sector. Um, and I, you know, that that number's probably not a trillion yet because some of that debt hasn't rolled off yet at those lower rates. But as that debt rolls off, you know, doing simple calculations, you know, the real soon, the interest expense is going gonna, is gonna to be well over a trillion dollars. And I mean, if you, you'd have to say we live in some pretty interesting times, right? Just a couple years ago, we were talking about how, how much responsibility the fed bears for, for income inequality with their zero rate policies and their, you know, non-conventional monetary policies like QE and so forth. And well, now we have a situation where the Fed unilaterally decided to increase the amount of money the Treasury pays to people who already have money in direct proportion to how much they have, using up limited fiscal space. and there's there's not even any debate about it. You know, if, if, the, if Congress decided that they were going to increase spending by 500 billion, you know there'd be tons of debate, you know, people would one side of the aisle, you know, would you have to both sides and I would have to agree for anything to get passed, so on and so forth. Well, I mean, we live in a world now where central banks just unilaterally you know, could, you know, put five hundred billion of extra fiscal into the economy.
0: Yeah, whether and they then, want to or not, they, <laughs> right. they Want to or not, they're playing the fiscal game.
3: They're right? playing the fiscal game, right?
0: And uh, but but the political party line is that mom, pop, kettle who save and their savings account, they can finally start getting a 5% uh, nominal rate of interest that they hadn't gotten.
3: Yeah. And I mean, you you could make the argument that it's a good thing that people could earn income on their savings, but I mean, we're not even, no one's even making the argument, you know, it's just, (laughs) we're not even debating whether or not that's a good thing or not. We're just, we just accept it as being sort of just a, a unavoidable consequence of trying to combat inflation.
0: By this the way, a student paw kettle can get five percent in their banks. This, yeah, that's
2: true too. This would be What's a good that? time actually to to bring in. Oh, he said it's not like mon paw kettle are getting anywhere near the Fed funds <laughs> rate their in their savings accounts either. So, no. yeah. Not but yet. Can, I mean
3: they can if they buy T bills though. So.
1: Yeah, those those that ever redeemed out of the the, the mid-tiered banks <laughs> that are starting to buy that tre that treasury ladder of bills. Uh, but uh, I do want to kind of linger on, I, I think you're touching on an important point, which is this uh, unelected body of technocrats and bureaucrats has been afforded a lot of power, largely because of the paradigm that we've been in over the last 35, 40 odd years, which is Adam was referring to before, which is the, the monetarist frame. These guys, especially once they leave office and they leave their roles as central bankers, they have admitted that they should not have this much power in their hands and they have been clamoring for governments to step in. And I guess what NFT provides is a bit of a framework where the government, where, where, where elected officials can use as a way to disperse these fiscal uh, uh, outlays and to sort of balance the economy in some way. But I wanted to go back on this point that you were uh, talking about labor and and unemployment being a choice unemployment is only a choice to the extent that you can spend that money and employ those people towards productive capacity right there's the old uh uh adage of having a group of people dig a hole having another group of people patch up that hole the gdp you add to the gdp you employ those people there's no productive uh activity happening there So, so I, I, I'm wondering, do you agree that you can only employ those people and achieve full employment through the use of fiscal policy to the extent that you get those people to to act productively and and, and to produce, produce goods and services that are demanded by the economy?
3: No, I, I think I'd have to push back against that, right? I would argue that our Congress isn't productively employed. <laughs>
1: I would not I would not I would not argue with that one right?
3: bit. Yeah. But, but, but but those checks don't bounce and those and they're, they're able to feed their families. are they doing would the American people consider what they do to be productive? Probably not. you know approval ratings are pretty
1: low
3: you know that that retorts a little tongue cheek, but it sort of illustrates the fact that the government could and when I say unemployment's a choice, what I mean is So I define unemployment as people looking for work that people looking for paid work, right? Like, you know, you could volunteer down at your local, uh, you know, shelter, or, you know, you could coach, you know, kids soccer at the YMCA and give your time. And to me, that's a form of employment. And, or if, you know, if you're looking for volunteer work and there's none available, you know, they, you know, YMCA already has a soccer coach. I don't consider that person to be unemployed per se, but if you're looking for paid work in the currency, uh, you know, and that which the government demands as payment of taxes is how I think unemployment is academically defined. And when you look at it from that framing you realize that the government imposition of the tax obligation is what creates that unemployment. It goes back to what you're saying in the beginning, Richard, when you said, if a government wants to, the government creates unemployment in the private sector so that it could hire those people, like the government wants, the government wants to, you know, wants a standing army. So it it, it wants to create available soldiers who are going to then show up and you know, conscript and get paid in their currency and so forth. And so to that degree, you know, Congress can always pass full employment policies. I mean, we've we've seen this uh, during COVID. I argue that during COVID, the government passed full employment policies. You know, the, they, we locked the economy down, people stayed home, but they got a paycheck in the mail because the, you were just employed by the government. You know, people who are receiving unemployment checks are, are they're employed. They're just in the public sector.
1: Right. And as we walk that forward, aren't the consequences that we have lived through of that policy, of that two year, give or take, uh, of, of fiscal outlays to, to remediate? And I'm not passing any any, any uh, moral judgment here. I, I think that was necessary. You might argue the degree, but I think given the the imposition of locking down the world or, or a good chunk of the world, you needed to provide people with the means to to, to provide for their families. And so I, I understand that. But if the inflation that we just saw is a consequence of that, then I think we're just, it's a real live example, recent live example of the consequences and the limitations of such policies in the real world against the constraints if you're not producing enough goods and services to meet that addition of aggregate demand once that monetary base is a lot larger
0: right okay. so I guess can I can I clear something up from me sorry guys I just yes. want to understand so you just said something that's very interesting right there was a policy that was implemented by the government that policy has led to externalities that were probably you know not something that they wanted which is inflation and overemployment um now the the, the blame has been placed on MMPers as like these, these guys, you know, they went into the government, they told them what to do. And this is the cause, like MMT is a total <laughs> failure. So this is where I think things are mixed. My view is that MM, what people perceive to be MMT is very different than what the government has done and is historically and is doing still. They, that, that the whole of the, the MMTers are trying to go into government and saying, this is our tool set. Please use this tool set rather than what you've done but maybe I'm wrong. So maybe PJ, you can clear that up. Right. Is the question yeah, no, Are they, they, have done. they run MMT policies or have they not? And can yeah. we do better?
3: Well, so for me, it's difficult to say what's an MMT policy, right? So, I mean, MMT is just a framework for analysis. So I may come to you, I may come to the government with certain policy proposals that a different MMT proponent, you know, would come with different proposals and it's, it's no different from a monetarist or if you're you know a new keynesian post keynesian neoclassicals you're not necessarily going to have the same policy proposals um what i will say is that you know from the public's perspective i do understand the i i do understand where they come from where and they're you know before COVID, you had the popularity of MMT starting to grow really fast you know stephanie kelton released her book deficit myth I think that was a, you know, New York Times bestseller in, in the economic category. Um, she was on the Senate Budget Committee, uh, working for, I think, Bernie Sanders' staff, and so forth. So, started to get some level of prominence. You know, as probably the most well, the most visible MMT proponent. And, you know, she was making the argument that, you know, the government's not revenue constrained. So, in other words, if if we say we want to rebuild our infrastructure, we're not constrained by, you know, the budget position. We're constrained by whether or not we have the available resources to do it, to get the job done and making these arguments. So as she was sort of, you know, I think correctly from my perspective, trying to push back against sort of like this, you know, budget myth, and then you get COVID and then the government acts in a very unrevenue constrained fashion. I do understand people saying, well, the government did MMT. And I mean, you know, I think I think the government acted in a fashion where it recognizes that there's no revenue constraint, but I, I think most MMT proponents would argue that the government is always ready to act in an unrevenue constraint fashion when push comes to shove, right? You know, when it's time to fund the Iraq war, you know, they don't go out and raise taxes dollar for dollar, they deficit spend and pay for the war. And so on and so forth. I mean, you know, when Bush, you know, passes the, you know, Bush tax cuts and prescription drug D, you know, that blows out the deficit, you know, Ronald Reagan trying to win the cold war that blew out the deficit. So the government, I think, I think governments will act in an unrevenue constrained fashion, but the political banter is always around a budget position. I think that's like more of like a political football, right? You know. Rodrigo, your party's in power. I don't like the proposals you put forth, so I say, how are you going to pay for it? You know, right. my party's in power. You know, if we have enough votes, that we 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 sign the bill and we pay for it. And it, it, you know, that's that's just more like political gamesmanship than than anything else. I think you know most right. people would in, would in agree an ideal
0: with. world. What would happen is, and what, and what what happens in the real world is, it becomes bipartisan when it's a disaster and we need to
3: fix it Yeah, when it's a crisis
0: when
3: and it's a disaster
0: and so that that's kind of when everybody aligns and maybe they do a good job and they recognize that they're unconstrained from a, from a, a monetary perspective then when we actually need to do some planning as a community and actually pre- create some spending on infrastructure that is needed in the country that's where It's been really difficult to use any. So you can't use the uh, "we're we're constrained by tax" argument, right? Or that's when they do use "we're constrained by tax" argument, and they they're not willing to do it. Um, Well, to
2: reframe that, you know, and I was I was I wanted to ask this a little earlier, but this is the perfect time. Does it matter, or how would how would you view the difference between spending and investment? Because I think. I, I think, well, I think neoclass, neoclassicists are like any budget, any fiscal deficits is spending, right? And, and you never hear a neoclassicist talk about, about investment if it's coming from the government, right? Um, right. Obviously, the COVID, um, you know, fire hose of money into people's bank accounts, to me, that, that's clearly spending. Right and you know you can argue degree, I think where oddly where there's the most contention in Congress is around what I would characterize invest as investment right I mean the um, us Society of Civil Engineers calculates something on the order of six trillion dollar public infrastructure deficit, deficit has accumulated over the last thirty years right um, yeah seemingly it's impossible to find any billions of dollars to invest in a new infrastructure (laughs) program, right? Um, So how does MMT view investment versus spending? And how does that contrast with maybe other dominant approaches?
3: Well, I think that's a good point, right? Because it's, these things come about from, you know, the way we're sort of conditioned to think about these things. That's sort of, you know, dovetails into what I was saying before about, you know, the Fed raises rates, you know, 5% and, you know, the government's fiscal position increases by a trillion dollars a year. And, you know, no one's debating whether or not we can afford to or not afford to do that. It's just sort of a consequence of necessary policy. And I'm not saying that the Fed is necessarily wrong to do so or not do so. I, I think that's beside the point. It just sort of illustrates what you're saying. And for me, it's, you know, when I learn, you know, macroeconomics, I look at s- investment as a subset of spending, right? There's spending for consumption, there's spending for, there's spending on investment, which gives you some sort of residual, you know, e- the belief is that if you spend on, you know, productive investment, that increases your future income which allows you to consume more in the future. Um, But, you know, to me, investment is a, is a subset of spending. So I agree with you. I think that when we look at government spending, we don't have a debate around, you know, whether or not this is, whether or not the spending is going to do something that is productive, that's going to pay dividends, like rebuilding our infrastructure um you know educating our youth uh you know those kind there there are these things that we sort of all agree are important things as americans but we seem to have resigned ourselves to the fact that we maybe can't afford to do them to the degree that we would like um you know because the government's run out of money and you know no one wants to pay higher taxes which is understandable so the belief that the government needs to get the money from taxing the you know, the public to, to spend on these things is sort of the limiting factor when you have these discussions. And, you know, as I was saying before, like, you know, (laughs) if that's the belief, then that you would expect the public, if they understood, would be very upset with these rate hikes and be wondering, Hey, you know, I I don't want to have to pay, (laughs) I don't want to have to have increased taxes to pay for these, you know, for these rate hikes, but it's that same dynamic. So it. There's definitely some sort of selective. We're really selective on where we sort of, you know, apply these constraints. Similar to Rodrigo's question about, you know, the fiscal side, you know, as well, where it's, I think it's just the way we're conditioned to look at some subsets of spending versus others. Right.
0: And is this a, is this a main goal of the MMT community, do you think, Ted? Is, is this a top of the agenda item? To educate on that part, yeah, So, so,
3: so as Adam said, I I had the privilege of working with uh, Warren Mosler, working directly under Warren Mosler for a few years, and he, you know, remains one of my dear friends and a mentor to me. And I, I'm not going to put words in all MMT proponents' mouths, but I will say that Warren's motivation for, in essence, being, sort of like the genesis of this framework was was exactly that it was this idea of it was this idea that we sort of allow there to be real resource or or we we basically have less real wealth lower standard of living because we're chronically starved of our actual productive capacity, we're we're not reaching that, we're not achieving our true productive capacity. Like, I mean, if you look at aggregate demand in in the United States, it's, I mean, right now we have record low unemployment. Um, And I would argue that we're still chronically, I mean, aggregate demand is still chronically lower than it could be. Um, And you could see that to me and what I think economists would term as effective demand, right? Effective demand is, you know, if you need you know we we want to hire more teachers more cops but people don't want us people don't want to do those jobs at those wages effective demand isn't just is there demand for your services like if you know if you set wages at 0 there's infinite demand for every good and service um you know how many personal assistants would you have rodrigo if if they were free maybe 10 <laughs> <laughs> not, but, not enough <laughs> not enough right but if you have to pay them that's when you see where effective demand really is, and I think that we that we've sort of just been chronically starved um, of aggregate demand. And you know, not in all periods uh, there are bottlenecks like right, like we saw post COVID, where you you know there were there were real labor shortages. There were people who were you know hesitant to go back to work. You know, a lot of people lost their lives from COVID. Those are some of those people were people in the labor force um who were no so law, are who people
0: that didn't law. want to go in because they had enough money in, the, in their pockets not to have to work right so those medial jobs might have not been if i yeah. could not work or work in a shitty job then that's a different yeah, thing
3: or, or you know i could afford to stay home and it, by staying home i could watch my kids if i go to work i'm gonna have to pay for daycare and then that's too expensive you know so people are making those sorts of economic decisions um and so, yeah, you, you have those sorts of bottlenecks, but I think if you look over the last, you know, 40 years, we've, you know, our productive capacity has been running, you know, most of the time, well below 80% um, and our capacity uh, utilization. And it's, and, I mean, you see it, you see it in the effective demand. It's like, you know, companies want to hire truck drivers, but they're paying a wage well below what people are willing to accept to do that job. You know, what does that tell you? That tells you that based on the current level of taxation and the private sector's desire to net save, there's not enough effective demand, there's not enough aggregate demand to basically support to support employment at certain levels.
1: Okay, I, I <clears> really want to well understand demographics play in this. Sorry right. I, I cuz we, we've touched on a few topics now that are kind of, in, in my view, uh, uh, circling the drain around this issue of demographics, which I, I think has changed, has evolved quite a bit in the last 40 years. And some would argue that it was the coming of age of the baby boomers of the 19 in the 1970s and 80s that propelled much of that increase in aggregate demand and part of the inflationary, uh, that we had throughout that year. So I wonder if you might kind of bring demographics into the picture. How does that play into the NMT framework? How, how does it? How does the NMT framework contend with the role of demographics, aging population, and maybe you might sprinkle in uh, an analysis or, or an understanding of what that does to the participation rate in the in, in labor, which is what we've seen is at historic lows and has been for some time. Which I think touches a little bit on on some of the things you've been talking about just now.
0: And how that ties into effective demand, which I still want to understand how we measure that, in, in like just the measurements generally.
3: Right. Yeah. I mean, I think I think the demographic point is a very important one, and and I I'm also uh, sympathetic to the view that a lot of the, you know, a lot of the boom we had in the '70s and into the '80s had a lot to do with demographic trends. And that now we might be seeing demographic trends sort of going in in the other direction as boomers are retiring. But what I I'll say that I think some people sort of use demographics like, you know, to do too much work in their modeling. Um, Because if you I mean, if you look at it, like, for example, with millennials, you know, a few years ago, people were saying things like, "Oh, millennials just aren't really interested in in household formation." You know, they'd rather live in the basement and take trips and go to concerts. They care more about experiences than things. But then, and as Yolo. soon as a, and YOLO exactly. But as soon as unemployment fell below six percent, all of a sudden millennials started buying homes and and buying things. And it's so 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 I I do think that they you know that you can't discount demographics of you know, of course, because I think demographics are sort of fundamental to the demand picture. But I do think that you, when you're when you're thinking about optimizing, you know, your real wealth as a nation, um, I think you can make the argument that we have that we have not done those sorts of things. I mean, just just look at something simple as like the tariffs, right? Like, so you know, we've decided that. We decided that Canada was selling us lumber for too cheap, making it too difficult for U.S. lumber producers to compete. So we imposed a 17% tariff. I mean, that's like you're you're literally telling your neighbor to charge me more for the. You, we still need Canadian Canadian lumber. It's not like we had a surplus of U.S. lumber and Canadian lumber was just it, like it, it was still a critical part of the entire demand stack. And all we did was make that component of it more expensive. Um, like, so when you look at the inflation story, I think not enough, not enough is being said about what, about the role that tariffs played in the inflation story. I mean, Biden came in office and he doubled down on the truck tariffs and those, they went from 17 to 34% on Canadian. Yeah, the
0: special interest group <laughs> benefited, but the rest of the population did.
3: The rest of the population had to pay high prices for lumber. <laughs> So and it's so you get those sorts of dynamics that, you know, that really sort of suppress um, aggregate demand. And, you know, I don't know if I know of a really good measure of effective demand. I just know that anecdotally to me, it's it's just sort of obvious. And the fact that where when. So, for example. When the government passes, you know, Dodd-Frank, right, it causes, it imposes a, a, a higher level of regulatory burden on financial firms and on bank, on the banking system, banks. Banks have to hire more compliance officers, so on and so forth to meet this compliance. Well, you never hear, you never hear JP Morgan say, you know, we were trying to hire somebody to do compliance, you know, we we're going to pay them a hundred thousand a year and no one showed up. It's like no because there's effective demand for that job but you hear it with a truck driver where they're trying to pay them you know 30 dollars an hour you know 25 30 an hour and it's like well no one's showing up it's like yeah because maybe you need to offer 35 40 to get people to show up for that job and so i think anecdotally you could sort of you could sort of get a sense of where effective demand is based upon where the current economic incentives are allowing you know certain labor okay. markets to clear where certain other ones aren't
0: so so how would mmt in that particular example like a, an MMT policy maker come in and say okay i think we can fix this by doing what how, yeah, do, so you,
3: right how do you yeah
0: how do you incentivize yeah much better how do you incentivize that those uh, truck driver employee employers to increase their prices via mmt
3: Um, I mean, you know, I could think of proposals that could incentivize that kind of thing, but I don't know if I'm necessarily proposing that that's what we necessarily need to do. I think the bigger insight is understanding that the economy that we could afford to have or recognizing that the economy probably has more drag than we're currently modeling, right? So... I think the way you would incentivize that to me, I think the easiest way the thing that has the most political capital to get done would be a tax cut. I think we're overtaxed as a society. Um, and I think it's evidence in the fact of that, that lag of aggregate demand, you know, some propon- you know, someone who's a little more, you know, some people might want to, you know, do that via, you know, some sort, some form of spending increase. I mean, I think you could do, I think in a lot of instances you could do both, right? If you want to, uh, if you believe that you wanna, you know, invest in the infrastructure, then I believe that you would incentivize it via, you know, spending money on infrastructure. I think that sort of, that increased income that private firms see is gonna support them, their ability It's gonna support profits at a higher level that would allow them to pay a higher wage so it allows them to attract more labor. I mean the See reason it? why the reason why the banks don't have any trouble attracting the labor is because they're they're probably their profits aren't as squeezed as as uh, you know construction firms or or transport companies. Isn't there also consideration
1: what, when it comes to some of these jobs, you you're referring to trucking, you might talk about coal mining. Isn't there also the incentive that once you can't find enough people to work at that particular price, what you're actually doing is uh, spurring innovation, whether technolo- particularly technological innovation, so that no one needs to work in those jobs where you're you're causing harm to your to your health, or you're sitting in a car for tens of hours at a time. W- isn't it preferable from a societal outcome perspective to to not raise the prices of those uh, of those goods and services or, or in particular those those uh, those jobs that are more harmful so that you can actually uh, uh, starve the economy and and to some degree create the the innovation
3: no I mean I, I think that's a fair point that's why I was a little uncomfortable with Rodrigo's question of you know how would I incentivize it? Like i you know, I, I'm not proposing like a centrally planned economy. I don't think that uh, I think sort of letting the economy you know letting economic agents sort of compete and come to you know come to the best solutions for some of these problems is the best thing. I think if you had infrastructure spending, firms would be able to invest into creating those sorts of innovations that you're saying that could you know ease some of these labor uh, issues with labor shortages. so you know, companies could innovate and create autonomously driven trucks. And, you know, you're seeing that in the mining industry um, and so forth. And, but all that requires there to be an adequate level of aggregate demand that people are willing to basically make those sort of capex um, expenditures, right? And
2: invest at those at the horizons necessarily in order to generate that kind of long-term innovation. Yeah. Right. Which
0: is gen- generally a government-led type of project, right? I mean, I think the, the in terms of a, a total aggregate capacity, one of the clearest examples is starting from the beginning of the United States. What what happened? You have some money to spend. You have two options. You could give it to people so that they can buy up more, pro- more goods and services or you could invest in, in railroads. And partner with industry. And what happens when you build railroads? It's just it makes it easier to do commerce, and that's that's the type of. I think if you are decaying in your infrastructure, you're slowly reducing efficiencies, which means that you're not maximizing your ability to grow as an as as a society to be more efficient to have, growing companies to go from west coast to east coast and and so on and so forth, right? So that's that's the decision that you make as a. a as a government agent, is are you putting money in people's pockets and unproductive so they could buy more things and bid up prices? Or are you putting money in something that will smooth out the economy and improve efficiencies? That is, I think
1: or especially issue. crowd in private investments. So be uh, the first lost capital to some degree yeah, to take a risk off private table. enterprise. To, to remove risk off Some the table, sure. so that you yeah, can incentivize yeah. private companies to come in and build infrastructure, and build uh, and, and provide goods and services for the for the general population.
3: Yeah, I, I think we've seen a good example of that with housing, right? When the government sort of created like the GSEs, you know, and became sort of that first loss, uh, you know, buffer for more home mortgages uh, for home loans, you saw an explosion in home ownership as more and more people were able to get, you know, affordable mortgages and buy houses. And, you know, that caused that growth in housing starts. And you see those sorts of, you see those sorts of policies play out in certain areas, but we, I don't think we have a framework that sort of applies that thinking more broadly to, to the broader economy.
2: You, made, um, you gave me twitches and seizures on that GSE assertion, right? Like, because now you're introducing you know, um, credit expansion and and you know speculative <laughs> incentives and all and all kinds of stuff. We know where where that ended up with Fannie and Freddie in, in receivership and you no. Know, so there's, yeah. there's, there's there's lots of hair on the. Um, you know, we're gonna we're gonna backstop investment. We backstop investment that's securitized, and then you, you know, basically you're providing for a a major leverage bubble, right? So
3: there's, there's well, no, I I mean, I agree. I think that there's, I think there's ways that you could sort of, I think that those policies were sort of mismanaged, right? We had that implicit government guarantee, but then we also had laissez-faire regulation. I don't think if the government's going to guarantee it's going to backstop an activity. I think they should have a very narrow set of rules on how you're able to basically do that thing, right? Like, um you know, the government trains the government trains and arms a Marine and they don't just let the Marine you know roam around and, and pull the trigger wherever he chooses. Uh and and that's the just... plot that Jason Bourne.
2: But true. you know the government could just step in and buy houses or and build houses too, right? Um they could or they could um incentivize municipalities with massive um you yeah, know, see, tax breaks I, or something, to, to build light rail and- They, certainly can. In, you they know, certainly can, regulate. they certainly can, I, I, like I
3: would argue that they're probably not the most efficient agent to do so. Like, I'm not one of these people who, you know, the government's inefficient no matter what the government does is inefficient. I don't think that's necessarily true, but I think it can be true in a lot of spaces, right? There are a lot of things that the private sector is able to do relatively efficiently that I think, I mean, if the government was building houses, then I mean, how many committees would it take to agree upon the floor plan? <laughs> uh,
2: the yeah, army could it. do it really
3: efficiently. But look, the anyways, army could do it. The army could do it no, very
0: efficiently. But look, it's the regulations and the poly, like. It's it's what Elon Musk complains about in California, right? Like yeah. you can't build anything.
3: The government can't build anything. Can overregulated do economy. Sometimes there's there's
0: so many different governing bodies okay, that okay. have.
2: Okay, okay. Okay. You know, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm <laughs> gonna press pause because I we all can roll we You're all roll on this for for another two hours, right? But I want to make sure that we we also hit on a yeah. few uh, a few other topics. One thing I think people are gonna be screaming at the screen is okay. You've mentioned the fact that um, the Fed has raised interest rates from zero to five and a quarter, and that is now blasting currently a half a trillion and and very soon a trillion dollars a year of new fiscal spending into the economy, which I think you're arguing is going to be a you know a, f- a positive feedback loop of fiscal stimulus, right? That is not being properly accounted for by most economic schools. So, um, what would you have them do instead, right? So, so we have this inflation problem. The Fed has stepped in. They've tried to um, to curb inflation by by this rapid increase in interest rates. First of all. What, what does the monetarist school say about what why raising interest rates is likely to curb inflation? Maybe if you wouldn't mind spending a few minutes on that, just you know, because they're not acting without some belief system, right? They think that this is Absolutely. gonna work, right? So why do they think it's gonna work? Why don't you think it's gonna work? And what would the MMT school with your framework and understanding recommend instead?
1: And maybe let's not forget that in addition to raising your interest rates, we have QT happening in the background. So right. which is a hugely critical uh component of the monetary tightening that's happening right now because it is forcibly removing uh, uh reserves from the system. But but please expand
3: on that, Pierre, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. So you know I think You know, our policymakers are operating from the framework that by raising interest rates, they're going to sort of, they're going to limit credit, they're, they're going to curtail credit. And by doing so, they believe that that's going to slow the economy down enough to basically, you know, bring down prices. Um, so you know, And then that's where we get into the discussions of soft landing hard landing so on and so forth um so the belief is that you know the government's gonna basically curtail you know the fed's gonna curtail economic activity through lending channels and you know whether or not that's going to cause a recession or not is debatable and so on and so forth but that's how they believe that they're regulating the economy they're they're hitting the brakes and i think it's that's sort of this monetarist view that um and it's, it's it's more it's not just a monetary view. I think that's a very uncontroversial view. I think it's a it's pretty much accepted by you know neo you know post Keynesians, you know neoclassicals also. Um, Whereas it's, it's this belief that by raising rates, you're going to hurt borrowers more than you help savers. And I actually think that that's I actually think that that's a relatively fair um, assumption it's a belief that the borrowers probably have a higher propensity to spend than savers. So, you know, even though raising rates is a transfer from borrowers to savers, the borrowers are likely to curtail their spending by more than savers would increase their spending from this added income. And, um, you know, I think that that's a fair assumption. What I do think is the problem is so you know when I started I really like got really deep into like high level macroeconomic discussions and debates, you know fifteen years ago, right after the the global financial crisis, and when we would have these conversations at you know you know conferences talking to other schools of thought, you know whether it be on message boards, whatever, one of the things that you would always hear is. The problem with the government running persistent deficits is that eventually the debt level gets high enough that the Fed loses its monetary policy tool for regulating- Fiscal industry. dominance. Fiscal dominance. And this was something that was pretty much, you know, it, back then it wasn't even debated. Like as an MMT proponent, we didn't, we didn't say that that's not true. We were like, well, yeah, there is- there could be that point where the Fed would lose that tool. And then at that point, if you sort of were facing, you know, dealing with an inflation problem, the government would should probably cut spending or raise taxes because raising rates is only gonna be, be adding fiscal, not not removing it. Um, so it's like everyone was in universal agreement on it then. And back then, you know, the the debt, I think the we probably had, what, the debt to GDP back then was maybe 30, between somewhere between 30 and 50%. Um, you know, Less than half that's, of
2: where it currently is, yeah.
3: Right, less than half of where it currently is. And, you know, no one really knew what, what that level of debt was where you would start to see fiscal dominance, but they knew that at some point you would get that risk. And now that we have debt to GDP at 100 you know, at least in the, you know, within the private sector, privately held debt is like hundred percent GDP. And, you know, I would make the argument that we're already at a level where you're seeing that fiscal dominance. And for me, I believe that you're seeing it because I believe that that's what you see. That's why you see the economy is being, that's why you continue to see economic growth. You continue to see unemployment at record lows and, you know, and core inflation, you know, isn't, you know, it. Isn't coming down, or at least not nearly as fast as the Fed would would like to see it come down. Um, and to you know, I, in my opinion, I just think that the burden of proof is on those who believe that. I don't think the burden of proof is in, is with the fiscal dominance camp. I think the burden of proof is with those who are saying that no, this debt level is not so high that we're seeing fiscal dominance. Um, And, you know, so, you know, you get the argument that, well, no, monetary policy just works with, you know, long and variable lags Um, and MMT proponents aren't, this fiscal dominance view isn't a view that's universally shared by MMT proponents either. Most of the MMT academics actually, you know, were pounding on the Fed and saying, hey, the Fed's going to cause a recession by raising rates, so on and so forth, you know, Guys like you know me, Warren Mosler, you know, normally a few people were kind of saying, "Ah, oh, no, I don't know, I don't think so. I think the interest on the debt's going to more than make up for whatever, you know, whatever pullback you see in, in lending." And and I mean, to this point, we haven't even seen that pullback in lending. So what that tells me is that tells me that savers are spending a portion of that excess income. And that portion is enough to support the current level of credit creation and uh, employment and economic growth. And and I think it's I think it's the risk is if the Fed so I mean it it puts the Fed in a real tough spot right. So if the Fed says okay so higher for longer and inflation remains persistent, God forbid inflation accelerates. I mean with oil prices rising there's a real risk inflation could accelerate. So the Fed goes, all right, maybe we have to do another, another couple of hikes. I think it gets to the point where I think there's some positive convexity in how much fiscal dominance actually supports as they hike rates more and more. I think that starts to be that much more excess spending because to me, it's all about, it's all about net savings desires, right? We work, we earn, And then we, you know, we pay our bills, we pay our taxes and we try to net save. We try to reach our savings position and the, any surplus income we have above our desire to save, typically we find some way to spend it. And that spending doesn't even have to be in the form of consumption. I think that's where I think some macroeconomists, I think in their models kind of miss the boat where they only model consumption. You know as a form of spending that can create inflation investment can also create inflation right if you're you know spending money and giving it to vcs that are giving it to you know these <laughs> all sorts of you know we're going to change the world buy all, batteries, you know, exactly. buy all these, these batteries, batteries. Or, i mean you that's look at you know businesses bad. like we work we're going to lease out a bunch of buildings and subsidize our customers to come in them so we're just going to create growth at any cost i mean all these kinds of things are you know our demand channels that can support prices at higher le- higher and higher levels potentially not necessarily but it's, it's possible
0: so is a is the mm is your view that it's sh- like okay i get that that's what could happen with the way we're going um so raise hiking rates might be the opposite of what we want is it then yeah, that? is I, that the is that the goal?
3: I think so. I, I like to me I think I think the government should be I think we should be a little bit more targeted in what we're doing with these policies, right? I mean, I'm sort of describing a situation where we're sort of as a as collateral consequence of fighting inflation, we're paying more and more interest income to savers. You know, to bondholders, um, we could have a we could have a more thoughtful policy where we don't do that, right? We could have a more thoughtful policy where we keep rates at a you know we keep rates you know at w- whatever levels desired. I don't know. To me, my perf- my preferred rate would be zero because I think that's the rate policy that's the least uh, amount of government intervention. Like, to me, like a positive risk-free rate just means that every borrower has to pay that much more. You know, like, there's no reason the risk-free rate necessarily has to be positive. And all that does is just, you know, push out this, you know.
1: Doesn't that create all sorts of externalities when it comes to... uh wealth inequality, asset bubbles, doesn't that kind of lead into this uh, Minsky moment of disequilibrium when, we ha- when you have this free money and this, this fanciful thinking, like very creative uh, interpretations of investment and-, and, and-
3: I mean, th- that's been the narrative, but I mean, I, I don't know, I tend to push back against it. Like, I mean, we, we, we didn't see those sorts of things play out in Japan.
1: But we did see them in the last
0: decade in the US. Did
1: we not? But
3: we we also saw them in the nineties in the US when interest rates were five percent.
0: Yeah, the causality and, and correlation. So it's
3: it's it, so to me it's kinda of hard to determine as to whether or not, you know, zero rate policy is really what caused those sorts of excesses. We've seen like I think I think US What might have caused we,
1: them otherwise.
3: I think it's just sort of the way we our institutional structures and the way we sort of uh, the way our institutional structures, you know, allow spending and wealth to be accumulated in our economy, it allows enough of it to accumulate with capital, and then capital is always looking for a way to, you know, invest and in, and in, you know for at, at returns, and and you get these, you get sort of when you get large pools of capital, you start to see you know investments that can be not as prudent as you would see when capital is a little more scarce amongst allocators.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that. I think there's there's an important um, thing to, to I think, explore a little bit, right? And it's, it's not just the savings glut, right? The Bernanke savings glut, which um, I think is part of what you're alluding to, right? Like there are, there's a huge, well, there's actually, there's a small number of extremely wealthy, Institutions and people that that need a home for their capital and they're all competing for for returns and therefore the you know, you've got too much capital chasing too little production and there and that's and that's where you get low yields and therefore high prices.
3: Right. Right. And, and, and then you start to go up the risk ladder when you're making these investments.
1: Right, which was kind right. of the stated objective of of QE when it first started. the 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 idea was to actually compress risk premiums, to, to 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 incentivize banks and private investors and the the general population to take on more risk and just to 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 spend more to to reduce the incentive for for risk free saving.
3: Well, I I think that became the narrative you know, after the fact. I, to me, I feel like Exante QE, the idea of QE was to give the banks excess liquidity thinking that that would then spur lending. And- Clean up their we,
1: balance sheets to some degree as well, right. help them yeah. with a, a balance sheet recession, which was was well, clearly the, the main culprit of- uh, Yeah,
3: I, I think the MMT policy was sort of born from what I believe is a misconception that banks are sort of reserve constrained when it comes to lending. This idea that if they have excess reserves, they'll do more loans, and it's just not—it's just not how bank lending works, right?
1: I don't know if we you... have enough time to pull <laughs> all these these different threads <laughs> that are coming up, and there's so much interesting. But I did want to ask you something because you do offer a, quite a nuanced view. You, you, your views are very nuanced with regards to MMT and how it fits into uh, markets and the economy versus some of the other things I've heard. And particularly, I, I read the the deficit myth. And I heard Stephanie Kelvin talk about it uh, uh, in a couple of interviews. I was very curious. She said something that stuck with me. And I'm, I'm from Brazil originally. And and that ji- that did not seem to resonate with the <laughs> our experience of hyperinflation, which was the role of inflation expectations. And she suggested that inflation expectations was was something of a myth or it wasn't really a, a uh, strong variable that could lead to the self-fulfilling prophecies of. Higher inflation begets higher inflation, and that was precisely the type of uh, pernicious uh, cycle that we saw in Latin America. In Bra- uh, Brazil, was from Peru, he saw that. Uh, from Brazil, I remember we actually had to create an intermediary uh, unit of value that was divorced from the old currency and the new currency in order to yep. break the back of inflation expectation. This was a Nobel Prize-winning concept. So, I'm curious,
0: what role
3: do you Someday see an expectation
0: tell the whole story there? Richard, because it's a fascinating one, so maybe we'll do that next time. But yeah,
3: yes. I think, yeah. I, think you got, I think you guys should bring Warren on the show and kind of dive a little deeper into like some of the specifics of like that Latin America experience. I think that'd be a good show. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, yeah, if he's no, willing to
1: come, if you want to do the introduction, <laughs> we'd we'd
3: more be very happy to have him. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, that, I don't think that's a problem at all. But no, I think to to your point, see, um, so. With inflation expectations, I think what this is kind of a hairy one to kind of j- jump into here because so I think it kind of really goes to whether or not you are describing inflation as academically defined or what we more casually the term, you know, coin as inflation, which is just an increase in prices, right? Inflation as academically defined is a continuous and constant increase in the price level. And it's, and you should sort of be able to measure that across all prices broadly. It's never going to be everything, but it should be pretty much universally felt. Cost of labor should be going up, cost of housing, cost of energy, you know, and I think that's the inflation that, you know, uh, Milton Friedman says that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon in the sense that you can't have it without an increasing money supply because eventually you just run out of money. The economy crashes and the economy becomes liquidity constrained and then that that stops. So for that to be persistent, you need that growing money supply.
1: It's a true, um, reason, right? The everywhere yeah. noise, and monitor. It's true, but it doesn't really explain. It doesn't do a whole lot. It
3: doesn't really explain here. anything. I think if, if then, infl- you know, I can't really speak directly to the inflation that you were experiencing in brazil but what i will say is there's this belief that so like for example with COVID, there's this belief that when you know prices increase that it's going to run away to the point that you know every agent's going to compete to increase their prices and then you sort of get these sorts of inflationary spirals and i don't know if i believe that's always true now I do think a lot of Latin American company uh, countries had government indexation to inflation. That and was I a think, huge
1: variable, uh, I think especially the indexation salaries and and uh, and auto triggers of inflation indexing for sure. So
3: I think it's the inflation indexing that allows that. So you have that higher amount of government fiscal that's supporting those higher prices at these higher levels. I think in situations where you don't see that sort of indexation, I don't think. Inflation is able to just run away based off of expectations. That way, uh, they're just going to. That explains I don't a lot of
0: Brazil, actually.
3: It right, no, yeah. Treasury
0: uh, tre- right. inflation protected uh, notes, right? Whatever. When They were higher than uh, the interest rate always. Right? And it so was the salary go-
1: renegotiations. Every year you had salary repricing and, and salaries would go up by the previous year's inflation. And right. so, and that, that becomes a self-fulfilling fulfilling prophecy. But also but the, the bonds,
0: situation. the government bonds would the provide, bond monetary, as well. would match the, the yield. And so that's why would anybody invest anywhere else but bonds? And if that's monetary, you're just creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, I,
3: I, I remember, I remember Warren was talking to a Fed staffer or actually no, someone from the treasury and he was saying, you know, why do you guys sell tips? Tips is sort of just redefining your currency lower. Um, basically, like we're yeah. saying with indexation. And you know, he struggled to find a good reason as to why they sell tips, except like
0: <laughs> except, except that Bridgewater,
3: water. Exactly. And it's so it's I think it's always those sorts of dynamics. I also with Latin American countries, a lot of times too, you have to be careful of there's often some kleptocratic policies that go on too, that can really, really spur you know, inflation. <laughs> so yeah, you have these dynamics where, you know, the state's making loans to private individuals and then forgiving those loans, like yeah, those kinds sure. of, so it's, those private it's, individuals it's, it's, use um, that it's, currency it's, to buy effects and it you know, puts pressure on the currency, puts, makes imports, cost more. So everyone has to raise their prices because to in order to afford it
1: Unproductive import. government spending and kleptocracy yes. is the name of the game. So, so uh, well, are, are, are the combined <laughs> <names> <laughs> of the
0: game. So, <laughs> what Jimori did in 1990 in Peru was once he took over and did, that just completely dissolved Congress and took over, he basically said, we are going to create a deflationary shock. We're not going to pay interest rates. We are going to match up what the cost of grains are in Peru to what the cost of the world is. And it is what it is. Deal with it. And it was called the Fuji shock. And there was a momentary pain, but then it it completely fixed the inflation problem in Peru. And we haven't had inflation above three and a half, four, like maximum 4% in the last 30, 40 years. It's been... It's interesting. Okay, that's that's I got to go back and rethink this. Uh, this is good. This is a great place that kind of we're coming to an <laughs> end here. But just last thing I want to ask you. So, you got all, all this knowledge. How much of this knowledge in, in, in kind of gives you a, a guide path for you, how you position portfolio?
3: Yeah, so I think, you know, I've I've been asked this question, you know, many times before and, you know, my default answer is I think it Keeps me out of trouble more than more than anything, right? So, um, it it doesn't always inform a trade, but a lot of times it keeps me from putting on a position just because, um, you know, it, it just my framework just tells me that that's probably not likely going to be the way things play out. So, you know, going into this year, you know, end of last year, going into this year, a lot of people were putting on recession trades. I was not doing that. I was sort of taking the other side of those, those crowded trades. Um, you know, so I was, I was long yields, um, you know, long yields, long growth assets to a certain degree. I wasn't as long as I should have been. So I didn't have the courage of my convictions to the degree that I should have had, uh, you know, to, to a certain degree, I was probably, uh, now it's paying way too much attention to the changing options, market structure, things like that last year and this year. So looking at a lot of things that were probably, I should have just bought stocks and played golf, to be honest. <laughs>
1: it's the that's the perennial faith of any trader, right? When you're right, you were too small. When you're wrong, you're too big. You, you, it's never going to be any different. So. It's
3: never going to be any different. But so it, it I think it's a lot of those sorts of dynamics. Um, you know, there was, you know, I think there was a, uh, A lot of chatter over the last twelve months about you know Japan and yield curve control and you know maybe now is the time to short JGB and you know trades like that I don't think I get as caught up with Um, so it, it it more or less informs that but the other thing is like you know the markets you know the markets never wrong right we all know that as market participants the market is the market so if most players are operating from a framework that's very different than mine. You know, sometimes it's prudent for me to trade alongside that crowd, even if I disagree, because, you know, that that's just the direction of things.
0: Yeah. It oh,
1: can take I'm... a while for the market to be right. Right. Uh, it's a, oh, right. That, that's right. It... Y- y- you could be right, but early and you can go broke before uh, your, your thesis manifests. But to, just to, to to close the loop on, on the JGB, you might have not have made money on shorting the JGB, but you definitely would have made some money shorting the yen. So, the, you know, it's got to shift somewhere.
3: Short and, <laughs> yeah, so, so have
1: we. So have <laughs> we. And it's been one of our best trades this year. So, I mean, you know that there are real constraints. So if you're going to hold one side of that uh, uh, for... Some things that are crumbled somewhere else, and that's where the uh, and that's where the trade actually was because there was real yield curve control, and there continues to be, even, even though they've hinted at uh, a slightly wider uh, range for not yields. To
3: in the, in- not to mention the energy exports, right? There's a, there, there's lots of reasons to be short. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. But we're we're coming up on an hour and a half, and and. I I continue to have more questions and more. Oh my God. We got to do a part
0: two for sure. Now that you've like cracked Latin America for me, we're going to (laughs) spend. Yeah, uh, we're doing it it for sure. State of the union here. Um, Well, listen, we appreciate you coming by and uh, giving us this uh, amazing masterclass on everything MMT and uh, how you think about trading. And I think that's important too, how we match kind of our macro views with how we trade and the level of uh, things that inform us you know, anybody listening, you know, uh, is there any place that we can follow you and uh, see what you're thinking on a day-to-day basis?
3: Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't do a ton of posting on social media, but, you know, I, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter. I think you guys li- you guys, linked my Twitter uh, account. Yeah. Um, I do post on Twitter occasionally. Um, you know, people want to connect with me on LinkedIn, and, you know, ask me questions or just talk macro. I'm always like all of us i'm always down the nerd out on macro with with just about anybody so <laughs> and yeah i mean i i appreciate it i appreciate the chance to, to catch up with you guys and get on you, twitter Richard.
1: you're tatiana pierre which i heard your interview with our good friend jason buck shout out to jason he's on <laughs> comments section there uh, that's your uh, daughter's uh Teddy Bear's
3: name or something. That was my daughter's Teddy Bear. Yeah. When I first started my Twitter account, I was still one of those I don't want to be on social media types. So I was like, I'm gonna use an (laughs) alias. When you lead with your LinkedIn account,
2: you're still one of those I don't want to be on
3: social media types.
2: That's that's right. (laughs) That's right.
0: (laughs) So yeah, everybody, please do if you're still listening here, please do like and, and share. You know, it helps us great get great guests like PJ over here. And um, and also, you know, we talk a lot about macro. Um, we we are macro traders. We're systematic macro traders. So if you are looking to find things that zig when your traditional portfolio zag, uh, do take a, a look at our website at investorsell.com. We have our main alpha product, which is the Evolution. Um, strategy. And then we have a couple of pr- uh, public uh, products that uh, you can find there and um, and maybe help you navigate these markets from all weather to all terrain is an interesting, if you want to look it up, it's a piece that uh, we wrote a bit uh, a while back. And it's this, it's a great piece because it, it's just, it, there's so many, um, it, there's so many angles we could take. It really is tough to be right all the time and b- make your alpha be a hundred percent of your money-making. This idea, Jason Buck, who's here, you know, with his cockroach portfolio. We have our adaptive asset allocation framework that t- tries to have a little bit of humility, you know, preparation before prediction, and then you know, tack on the alpha after the fact. So, if you're interested in as any of that, diversification the as
1: we can layer on.
0: And uh, if you think we're after. full of crap, just add some comments down there and let's start a dialogue. I'll ma- <laughs> make sure is, uh, is aware of, uh, of the comments and get them to reply back. <laughs> And thank you for
1: listening. Like, share, subscribe. Have a great weekend. Thank you again, PJ. Thank you, PJ. Lots of fun as always. Episode number two.
0: Thank you. All right, see you guys. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at InvestResolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next
3: This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part Evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Dash Masterclass.